I'm Tokumba Adibui, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. In our last episode, we discussed how biases in elementary and high school are a barrier to equity for Black students. But the conversation doesn't end there. We had one more interview that we couldn't fit into the final cut. So for this bonus episode of No Little Plans, we're doing something we haven't done before. We wanted to spend more time on this topic to explore how bias follows students into higher education. Hanan Mohamoud is a law student at the University of Ottawa. She's worked with the UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees, helping to advocate for refugee rights to education and healthcare in Malaysia. My name is Hanan. I'm a law student at the University of Ottawa. She also co-hosted a podcast called Is This For Real? about anti-Black racism and policing in Edmonton, Alberta. The podcast goal, I guess, is to give Black people a platform to be able to share a clear-cut truth of what police brutality is. Hanan plus her co-host Omar Salifu and their collaborator Bashir Mohammed investigate topics like the presence of police officers in school, the questionable ways the media reports on racism, and the over-policing of Black people in the city of Edmonton. After hearing about George Floyd's death, a lot of people in Edmonton, Canada in general, were talking about policing and Black lives. And it just seemed that everyone was just too surprised, I guess, with this concept of police brutality. I mean, it really did go down to this idea of like not enough knowledge being out there. I rarely hear race discussed in such a transparent way. Listening to the podcast hosts talk openly about going to school in Edmonton and living in Capital Region housing that's Edmonton speak for public housing, was incredibly refreshing. Honestly, it helped validate my own experiences. We go to school to learn about the world, but often what we learn is our place in it, the unseen curriculum that determines who excels, who falls behind, or even who gets criminalized. These lessons don't end after you get your diploma. To keep the conversation going, we're pulling the curtain back and giving you an opportunity to hear an uninterrupted conversation between Hanan and me. We covered just about everything, from growing up in Dickensfield, Edmonton, how education is leaving BIPOC perspectives behind, the cost of speaking out against injustice, and why Hanan keeps striving for better. And even though Hanan and I are both based out of Edmonton, for pandemic reasons and everyone's safety, we reached each other over Zoom. Part of the recording got deleted, so at the end, you'll hear a change in audio quality. Anyway, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Here it is. How do you see or describe yourself? Uh, do you describe yourself as like a journalist, an activist, advocate, oh my expert? Gosh. Uh, none of those, actually. I see myself as, I guess, a citizen that hasn't been given the rights that I've seen other people have been offered. Uh, I also see myself as someone that is surrounded by injustice. You know, growing up in Dickensfield, you see mm-hmm. that. And then, you know, slowly starting to be able to address that as a Black woman or a, as a Black Muslim woman and understanding the intersectionalities of myself made me realize, okay, like, I'm really just someone who wants to call out inconsistencies, I guess. Mm-hmm. Point is, in all these multiple facets of my life, I've constantly been questioning, like, okay, what is what am I doing wrong Yeah, and I feel very similarly. I work in a school, um, and I left Dickensfields when I was really young, but I've now, because of this work, been back in that neighborhood a lot. And it has been 
very interesting now as an adult trying to affect change in things like capital region housing and these schools that I used to pass by all the time, uh, seeing it from, I guess, that different lens and trying to address some of those things that you talked about. Why isn't this fair? Why is it a whole bunch of um, newcomer families like me all in the same area together with no renovations? And I, I, I understand Amazing. I'm glad I, we don't have to get into the minute details of that. <laughs> well, speaking of minute details. <laughs> Here we go. So one of those institutions that we've seen over this last seven months be problematic is education. Um, in your experience, uh, what have you seen with how education can be exclusionary to black people? Honestly, like I always like going back to understanding how things were built up because that gives me more clarity when I figure out like how did we even get here. And when we talk about education in Canada, we have to firmly acknowledge residential schools. We have to acknowledge how placing people to understand how the world works through a Eurocentric perspective, a colonial perspective, is what would make them successful, mm. right? So we already had this standard that was set up of like, this is how education should look, and this is how we expect them to succeed. And when you have a system like that already placed in, and then it's like slowly abolished because now people are saying, oh, this is weird, you know, we're a country that's centering peacekeeping, you know, and fighting for people across the world. But we we, we have boil water advisories here. We Our last residential school closed in 1996. You know, we have these very real and very close, you know, 1996 was when I was born, <laughs> very close timeframes of when these things happened. Yeah, And it's very unfair and inconsistent, I guess, or like careless to kind of assume those systems didn't infiltrate what we have today. So when I was like growing up myself, you know, you already have these education curriculums set up that, you know, this is what you're going to learn. This is how it is. Uh, I didn't hear about residential schools or, you know, the indigenous ethno cleansing that has happened here. I learned about it through my neighbors, like Dickensfield. There's a large indigenous population that lives mm -hmm. there. We would have people talk about it during powwows. And, I'm, you know, that's when I would get exposed to knowing that people at a reserve, you know, 20 miles away don't have water. Like they're boiling water and they've been boiling it since, you know, settlers have come into this country, right? So learning about things in my community was a new way for me to start knowing that education wasn't just solely based on school. And it started to reaffirm to me that like, okay, I do have a place in society as a Black person, even though I'm not represented in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important for people to know that just because we're a country that is doing our best to help other people around the world, we have our own problems, serious problems here with our education system. And we have to step up to start acknowledging it now. Back in October, 34 professors at the University of Ottawa circulated an open letter about using racial slurs in what they considered academic freedom. Things escalated, and the letter got a lot of attention from the media and professors outside of the province. If you were following the story from last fall, you may recognize Hanan from speaking out. Hanan spoke publicly as a representative of the Black Law Students Association, stating that racial slurs have no place in the classroom. She put herself out there to make sure the concerns of students were represented, too. Could you actually, could you go into um, what took place with the University of Ottawa real quick? Because I'm, I'm not sure everyone is familiar. A few months ago, well, this goes back years ago. You know, in my undergrad at the University of Alberta, um, I heard a professor say the N-word in a class. She was talking about 
Brazil and it, it just the context did not make sense to me. And in that moment, I knew, you know, this is a word that would be commonly used in education. Um, whereas for me, I saw it as like, you're using a word that is literally flooded in my DMs, you know, a word that people say to me to make me shut up. Mm-hmm. So the University of Ottawa, same situation is going on. A bunch of undergrad students actually had enough and a student recorded the situation and it was like going viral on Twitter. The student took it down and then... The professor that was being called out ended up giving an apology, saying that they were apologetic of what happened. They didn't intend for the severity of, I guess, backlash that they were getting um, because they did get a lot of hate. And, you know, a bunch of professors signed a letter saying that they want to prioritize academic freedom. And at the crux of it is is the N-word. And so my role in this was, you know, I represented the JD students and another student represented the medicine students. His name is Ibrahim What we did was we wrote a letter basically saying we need our university to condemn this and actually realize the significance and historical danger this word has under the Ontario Human Rights Code. It literally says if you're paying for a service for anything, you should not be exposed to a racial slur. It's the same thing with anyone who is disabled and they're dealing with ableistic comments. Uh, They're able to take it to the tribunal. Uh, An investigation would happen. So it's really odd to me that this is happening So we're hopeful that the university will take a step back and this won't escalate. Um, We're also hoping that the professors won't escalate situation either. Some of them have been very, like the one who who actually apologized, right? Like she went on radio, CBC Canada, she apologized, recognizing the harm she has committed. And to me, I think that's the crux of what an apology should be. Acknowledging that even if you did not know that your actions were harmful, um, you harmed someone. That harm is there. Um, so, so yeah, right now it's, it's really up in the air. It's still an ongoing thing. I know that university president made a YouTube video. He acknowledges racism as a real thing and zero tolerance is something that the University of Ottawa wants to prioritize. Okay. And to me, that's a step forward. It's sad that that's the bare minimum, you know, wanting zero tolerance, but at least he said it and he set the standard that staff, faculty, students should not be behaving like this under the guise of academic freedom because it's a racial slur. Yes. Back in the fall when we spoke to Hanan for the podcast, what she told us about her university was all over Canadian media. We contacted the University of Ottawa to learn more, by the way, and in their response, they said that they are, quote, working to eliminate anti-Black racism in any and all forms on our campus. Looking back, it was a really heavy moment for Black students, who had to transition to online learning and, in Hanan's case, also call out the kind of injustice she was seeing take place. And so, as we get ready to publish this interview during Black History Month, it bears saying that being a Black student in Canada is no small task. I know that you have also had some experience working with the UN. How is anti-Black racism a barrier to achieving the sustainable development goal of no one left behind? That's that's the mantra. That's the main mission. No one is left behind. Um, how do you think anti-Black racism plays into that? Yeah, so I think I think a lot of things about the UN. <laughs> I volunteered there for about 10 years. I still do whenever I can. Uh, I deeply admired Kofi Annan. Like when I was growing up, the UN was like, I still probably is an organization I see huge potential in, but it is severely lacking in how it addresses not just anti-Black racism, but I guess conflict as a whole, if we're going to get really deep. Mm -hmm. With any group or organization 
that wants to strive to include Black people, you have to first and foremost center Black people. Mm -hmm. But we have to remember that once you create space for us to have our own conversations about what change should look like, we're able to create tangible policy suggestions and be able to move ideas, I guess, more further than they've ever been. And a good example is when we talk about reform. Reform to me is this really, really Eurocentric concept because before you even address a problem, move to fix the problem. And that is, that there's so many layers of problems with that. (laughs) First and foremost, I think... You're building on top of like a cracked foundation. Exactly. And you're doing that purposefully, right? Like you're setting us up to fail. And then once Mm. you fail, you blame it on who? The people that you were supposed to help. You say, okay, Black people didn't access this service. They didn't show out. They didn't come to this conference. But it's like, who are you basing this reform mechanisms or practices off of? Uh, This idea of you saying, we know what the problem is. When you're not doing research, when you're not actually getting Black people to come and give true opinions of what's going on. And I'm someone who like really loves research, despite, you know, not like getting into the minute details of it. I believe firmly in holistic ethical and equitable research. And to me, that means, you know, Black people that are equipped to do this research, going into their communities, giving surveys that actually are addressing the problems rather than dancing around issues that are made up, in my opinion. That's what I think. Despite, you know, having like the UN uh, Secretary General Assistant, like being a Black woman, you know, having all these women in these top positions, I don't think it's reflected in the people that do policy. I don't think it's reflected in the people that actually made the sustainable goals because it's it shows there's yeah. a very neglected, deep analysis for anti-Black racism that's centered on history of colonialism, slavery, disproportionate incarceration numbers, you name it. Um, I'm very optimistic about the world. I like to think that, you know, there's opportunities for growth and change, but it's hard to do that when when people don't want to give you the tools to do that and they think they know what's best for you. Like you said, and and I'm sure you're one of many people, um, back in June... I was surrounded by people who were very surprised at the kind of state of the world. I didn't know that racism was still happening, but I'm sure to a lot of people listening, none of this is news. Um, None of it was news. The upshot of this is that there is a renewed interest in Black Lives Matter. There is a renewed vigor in social justice movements, especially along racial lines. What do you hope comes of this? What What is your most hopeful outcome for all of this action, all of this protest? How do you think we can build for a more equitable future? Okay, before I let Hanana answer my question about the future, I just have to warn you that this is where the recording cut out. But what she said is really important, so we wanted to include it anyway. Now, back to Hanan. So I'm a firm believer of like, it always starts with you. Um, That's something my parents have always said to me. You're always in a moment where someone is saying something or doing something and you have the autonomy in that situation for yourself to act and say something. And, you know, sometimes there's restrictions on that. You know, you Mm -hmm. can't act out to your boss. (laughs) Everyone has a shelf. That's what my dad says. You know, you sit on your shelf nicely. And then when it's easy for you to say something, you say it. I disagree with that. If you can't tell, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I firmly disagree with that um but it's because you know of that dynamic of like being policed and the imbalances that exist for a lot of black people that they put themselves on shelf but this is like me talking directly to white folk it's great that you're you know you have this rigor and you want to understand and how to be a great ally to me i always have been in situations where i'm speaking out 
even now I'm speaking out against the university as a law student in my first year and there is silence around me right everyone was posting these black squares everyone was out here saying stuff but then when you have black women trans folk from Windsor anyone saying something there is silence and I'm not saying, you know, come running into my DMs right. and saying like, oh, how can we support you? Yada, yada, yada. What's your cash app? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there's always a moment where someone that you can see is saying something and you chose not to say anything. And the excuse I always hear uh, from close friends, even like they're telling me, they're messaging me. They're like, oh, I didn't know if that was my place to say something. I, I felt weird. I don't want to take up space. And I'm thinking, okay, did you want me to? while I have this midterm and like the same struggles that you have, but also deal with this. I mean, sure. As like someone who has an amazing family that's here to support me, a great friend group, you know, I have these mechanisms for when I fall back that can catch me. Right. There's people that don't have the same privileges that I do. So I'm, I'm a firm believer of like, you know, you're sitting in your meeting for work and you hear your boss say something very Islamophobic, say something, yes. even if there's not a Muslim in that room, if you're, walking down the hallway and you hear someone talk really badly about the janitor or like the cleaner and say like, oh, these people are coming into these countries and yada, 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 say something. Because when you're posting that Slack screen and or being shocked about racism, I will question it. I'm going to be like, oh, are you really surprised? Because if you're surprised, that means you were complicit when those things happened. I believe people more when they say, oh, I've been aware of this. I've been seeing this because I know that shows me they've been acting out and they've been saying stuff. They've been causing good trouble, right? Whereas the people that are surprised, I, I'm here writing notes. I'm like, oh, so you're surprised. Okay, okay. So mm-hmm. now I know who not to rely on. Now I know when I'm like deep in the trenches of dealing with racism that I'm not going to shoot you a text to say, hey, I need support because you're surprised. You're too busy being surprised. So yeah, I'm very optimistic that people are going to now start noticing these things and not thinking that, oh, the Black person can deal with it or the Black girl that's always talking can deal with it. No, no, say something. Right. Uh, you're always taking up space regardless. You weren't thinking of taking up space <laughs> when you're interrupting someone. Don't think about taking up space when, when you're seeing this stuff happen. Right. There's a lot of emotional labor that goes into just kind of carrying throughout the day as a person of color, especially if you exist in typically non-colored spaces. Um, perhaps mm-hmm. law school is one of those. <laughs> But <laughs> drag them. Uh, but like, just to extend off that thought, like, mm-hmm. I'm remembering now, you know, whenever people are telling me about courage, and like saying, Oh, you're so brave, and all these comments that I really hate, I always think that in those moments is when I'm the most afraid. Um, I'm afraid of losing the intergenerational wealth that I just managed to kind of secure, like I'm in the top whatever percent of being able to get my family out of poverty. And I'm throwing that away by calling out racial injustice, right? So I always I want to always tell people before you message a black person or someone that's speaking out or an indigenous person about how courageous they are always think and say this was probably a moment when they were most fearful for themselves and here you are (laughs) painting them with this brush of courage when you're not supporting them so yeah I always tell people to take a step back and rather than put yourself in someone's shoes because you can never do that think how how can I see this with a clear set of eyes that's not Uh, biased for my sake and like I've been in situations I'm not even gonna front here (laughs) that Mm -hmm. I'm the one constantly saying something and co-workers get exhausted by it they're like hello like why are you always bringing up all these other things that we have to consider or like why are you bringing up that people are saying inappropriate things like why can't you just be fun to get along with why are you a cynic 
I hate that word cynic uh, because it constantly reminds me that no matter what I say, I will always be seen as someone who is not happy with the situation at hand, which is true. I am unhappy, but that's not a bad thing. I see it as anyone who calls out a situation that they're in that's inappropriate. They're trying to strive for something better. They're the true optimists because they see a standard that should be upheld and it's not being upheld. And they're the true visionaries, right? Like anyone who has ever said something in any situation are the ones that are demanding for better. Calling out racism comes at a cost. You can get labeled as troublesome. You can lose employment opportunities. Or worse. As a public voice, Hanan describes how her DMs are filled with racial slurs and threats. The people most intimately familiar with these issues are at most risk when discussing them. And this is largely for the benefit of those who get to be surprised by these stories. Surprised by injustice. This is privilege. When we put together these episodes, we only have so much time to get a point across to you, the listener. And what we often have to leave out is hours and hours of messy conversation with guests, where points contradict, where we don't arrive at nice, clean answers, or where questions just have no answers at all. And then there are the guests we don't meet, because, again, speaking out about these issues poses a risk. Speaking to Hanan reminds us of how history and structures of oppression are inseparable from policy and decision-making. We can't talk about policy without also acknowledging people most affected by it. Thanks to Hanan for speaking with me and the Is This For Real podcast team. If you're interested in learning more about what they do, you can go find them at isthisforreal.ca. My name is Tokumba Adibwi, and this has been No Little Plans, a podcast from Community Foundations of Canada. Our show is produced by Ellen Payne-Smith and Sabrina Brathwaite. Katie Jensen is our executive producer. Our music is by Elcon. This show is a project of Strategic Content Labs. If you want to learn more about the SDGs, go to alliance2030.ca. It's a website created by Community Foundations of Canada to track SDG efforts across Canada. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share, as it helps other people find the show. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at No Little Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts, and join us as we look at the big plan to reshape the world.